This podcast is meant for general health information and is not meant to override any medical advice. All questions will be screened and not contain any personal information. If you want a private consultation, contact us via positivechoice.org or you can contact your provider directly. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Positive Choice Wellness Podcast. I am Annalise Piazza, an exercise physiologist. And I'm Melanie Perkins, and also an exercise physiologist. And today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Mr. Eric Rosenberg. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> so, okay. So just a heads up, you guys, we're taking a little bit of a different track today. We're going to talk about financial wellness. And um, Eric works here at Kaiser, and he's got a, such a diverse background, um, but some notable things. Okay, he's a black belt, a Six Sigma black belt, and a lean Six Sigma green belt. Mm-hmm. What is Six Sigma? Yeah, it's uh, process improvement. So it's a, uh, the black belt is in um, sort of efficiencies and process improvement and, and those kind of things and, and geared, the lean part of it is geared towards healthcare. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Learning stuff right off the bat. That's right. That's what we're here to do. And then I think the, the most important thing to note based on today's uh, topic is your financial coordinator for us here. Yeah, so I'm a financial coach. I've uh, been doing that for a number of years now, uh, kind of a passion of mine. Um, I do it uh, on the side as well for, to help out as, as one of my missions. Uh, do a lot of stuff with um, healthcare workers, um, military, uh, friends and family. And so it's a little passion project of mine and hoping to bring that to uh, the larger group here at Kaiser and, and see if we can help somebody. Fantastic. Okay. I am super excited to talk about this today. Um, I was talking before we started about how this has been a long-term interest for me, but I also think it's a really important thing to talk about because one of the things that comes into play with our health and some of the stuff that we deal with here is stress, right? So finances can be a huge source of stress. Yes, a hundred percent. So what a lot of people don't realize is that on the wellness wheel, finance is an element on that wheel. It's a branch on that, on that wheel or a spoke on that wheel, if you will. Um, and there was a recent study, a recent article done by Purdue University, um, and they found that worries about finances came in as the number one stressor across all age groups according to the 2018 Everyday Health United States of Stress survey. And then in 2019, Bankrate did a survey as well. And according to that survey, um, money worries was the biggest cause of sleep loss in America. So certainly a stressor. Uh, The surveys um, support that data that money and finances are stressing people out. Um, 78% of US adults are estimated to be losing sleep at some point during the year related to finances or financial stresses, um, whether that be everyday expenses, saving for retirement, kids college, or um, something we're all very familiar with, healthcare costs. Mm. Mm -hmm. So talking about finances, um, bringing uh, financial wellness to the forefront is something that I think is really important. I know it's something that you're passionate about that um, we'd like to 
do a little more of, and I think it's something we just don't talk enough about. Um, and so hopefully we can break that taboo here and, and we can start off with this, this podcast. I love that you said it was a, a taboo because that is really true. There's kind of this unspoken rule. You don't talk about money. Yeah. And that's an interesting sort of unspoken rule. You know, uh, we call it personal finance, right? Cause it's personal. And so when you typically think of something that's personal, you think private. And, um, in fact, that's, that's hard. And, and we see that with a lot of mental health issues is that when somebody keeps those things to themselves and, and private, it, it, it's hard, it gets worse and it's hard to help when, when you don't know what's going on. And so the more we talk about it, I think the better we can uh, influence and, and find out where people's stressors are coming from, maybe where their education gaps are. A lot of doing well with money is, is knowledge and, and understanding how money works and how finances work and um, what are the areas where you might have a gap. And it's different for everybody because everybody's in different places in their life, different ages, different income groups. And so we got to talk about it to find out that piece. Where are you with money? Some people are better with it than others. Some people grew up in a family that talked about money. Other people grew up in a family that didn't talk about money. So starting the conversation is the first step. So where, where do we start that conversation? Ah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the million dollar questions. So. Right. I mean, I, when I think about some financial advice, a lot of people think about things like, oh, well, you know, you have your latte factor and you're buying coffee every day or you're buying avocado toast. Like that's where the root of your financial problems come in. And that, that seems so simplistic and probably not the solution. There's a whole bunch of articles that they released about that where they said the reason why millennials don't have enough money is because they're buying too much avocado toast for sure. And we all sat there like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, so I think blanket, that's part of the problem. Those blanket statements. Um, we don't know if that millennial is making a hundred thousand dollars a year or $20,000 a year. Um, and there are millennials out there making a lot of money doing very well. Uh, I come across them all the time. Uh, there's other millennials that are still living at home and maybe not doing so well and having a hard time finding a job. And so, yeah, in that situation, buying avocado toast is probably not smart. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're 25 or 30 and, and you make $100,000 a year and you don't have any debt, go ahead, buy all the avocado toast you want. And so that's not the problem. Um, and so I think we've got to start by um, creating a plan and a way for people to look at their finances and determine um, where they are and, and where their money's going and what areas they need to focus on based on their specific situation. And so uh, there's something that I work with and, and have developed over time, uh, seven, uh, sometimes eight steps that you can do to start looking at your finances and figuring out where your gaps are and um, get them dialed in. And so I think the place you start is to look. So that's the very first step. So step one is, uh, do you even know where your money's going? And I think for most people, they don't. Right. So step number one, get out of denial. Yes. And start <laughs> Face the facts. Face the facts. So, so what do I recommend when I, when I first start 
meeting with somebody and, and finding out about them as I say, okay, well, you know, let's, let's just start with the very basics. Let's say, how much money do you make a year? Perfect. Let's start there. Then I'd say, do you, when's the last time you sat down and looked at your bank statement or your credit card statements? So I would start there. I said, we need to figure out what, what the playing field is for you. So what are the basic facts about your life? Number one, how much money do you make? Number two, how much debt do you have? And number three, what are your goals? And we can start there. You know, what are your goals in life? So if one of your goals is to um, go to college or one of your goals is to buy a house or one of your goals is to uh, retire wealthy, we can start building a plan to get to that place. But we first got to know where you are. And if you don't know where you are and you don't know what your money's doing, you can't develop a vision. And, and with, when there's no vision, there's, there's no plan and there's, you know, it's going to be very hard to get there. So that's the first step is, is to sit down and actually look at your money, look at your finances. Um, and that's where I would start. I love that. And it's a lot like the advice that we give people around dealing with their health issues too, is that step one is to get really honest with what, what are you eating? What are you doing exercise wise and plan a goal? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So before a doctor prescribes, right, a, a solution or prescribes a, a treatment, what do they do? They order tests. They find out what are your labs? What are your, you know, do you need an x-ray? What They do an interview. You know, where are you at? How, how often do you exercise? Do you smoke? You know, those kind of things. Um, so the first step is to find out where you're at. Where are you at financially? Uh, you know, how much money do you have in the bank? How much debt do you have? Um, and uh, do you have an emergency savings? Uh, do you, you know, uh, make enough money? You know, is the shovel big enough to get you out of where you're at or to get you where you're going? Do you need a better job? And does that better job require more education? You know, how are we going to pay for it? So there's a lot to, to, to build upon, but the first step is knowing where you're at and then developing a plan from there. Um, so that's where I would start is, is number one, when I advise somebody, so the tip, if you're going to take tip number one today is know your finances. So set aside 30 minutes. That's my challenge to all of you listening is this month. I want you to set aside 30 minutes. I want you to sit down with your bank statements or pull them up on the computer. And if you have a significant other, whether that's a, a spouse or a domestic partner or somebody you live with that you're, you're in a relationship with, I want you to sit down for 30 minutes, no more than 30 minutes, because you can only handle it for, for that long. Uh, and some people probably that's too long. But um, uh, 30 minutes, sit down, pull up all your bank statements, take a look at them, look for any irregularities. Is there something that was going out that, uh, ooh, I didn't, that, that, that wasn't me and you need to call the bank. And then look at, most people have credit cards, so look at your credit card statements. And then I would suggest after you've done that, you've gotten pretty familiar with it, you schedule a follow-up meeting where you're gonna sit down for another 10 or 20 minutes and you're gonna list out your debts from smallest to largest. And you're gonna list next to that how much your income is. So that's gonna be step one and step two. And then the third step to that is you're gonna make a budget. So you're going to create a budget. Everybody needs a budget. So uh, without a plan, um, you know, you, you can't attack it. Everyone creates a game plan. Before you have a baseball game, you create a lineup. Before you have a football game, you have plays. So you need to have a plan. You need to have an, a play that you're going to do step by step. But the first three things is have that budget meeting or that, excuse me, that uh, 
finance meeting of, of review. Number two is sit down and list out all your debts. And then number three, create a budget. So it feels like each step has their own little three-step process to participate in each step, right? Like that's what I've seen as a trend so far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and that's probably the black belt in me, the Six Sigma black belt <laughs> that wants to create a process for everything. Um, but you know, a lot, I think that, that works well. Uh, you know, and, and, and if you're further ahead than that, then you're already saying, well, I already have a budget and I, I work it every month and, and I know then great, you can kind of skip ahead and I have a plan for that as well. Um, but ultimately, I think the, f the first step that most people need to do is really start looking and talking about their finances. And if you don't talk about them with your significant other, that is probably one of the biggest sources of financial issues uh, amongst couples. And, and you know, we know that, that divorce, uh, that one of the leading causes of divorce is money. And so getting on the same page with your significant other about your money and, and may, be that them just knowing where the money's going. Uh, I have counseled people in the past that have had a significant other pass away and they don't know the first thing about how, oh, they handled all the money. They paid all the bills and they don't know what they're doing and somebody else has to step in and help try to figure it out. Uh, and that's often very risky and can, can, can lead to a lot of additional stress. So I, I do think it's important for both sides of the partnership to be on the same page at least and understand and make decisions, I think, together, which is good for any relationship when you guys are communicating and making uh, decisions together. And that kind of goes to something that um, you had mentioned in some of the materials um, that we pre-looked over was preparing. So making sure that you are covered is part of financial wellness too. So having appropriate insurance, having a living will and trust, having these things set up so that in an emergency, you have some safety net. Yeah, that's great. Great point. Um, just like in, in any sport or any, um, you know, battle, those kind of things, uh, finances is both offensive and defensive. And so offensive, you think investing, those are offensive pieces of financing. Um, budgeting, I think would be considered an offensive, you're, you know, you're telling your money what to do. Uh, and then there's defense and everybody needs a good offense and a good defense. And so defensive things in life are like health insurance, life insurance, having will, everybody needs a will. And that's important. And, and I would say everybody, meaning uh, anyone above 18 needs a will. Um, and, uh, and especially in California, you don't want to go through probate. One, it's expensive, and two, it takes a lot of time. So, you know, you're actually doing your loved ones a favor you're, when you fill out a will so that that burden doesn't fall on top of them at the same time that they're grieving. So things like wills, advanced directives, um, you know, the, um, having proper life insurance, having proper car insurance, uh, homeowner's insurance, if you own a home, those are all things that I consider defensive ways to protect your money. So you got to protect your money as well as offensive things like investing. Often we, we think um, about investing more often, but what you'll find is that most wealthy also play very good defense and they protect what they have because you got to keep what you have as well. So, and then protect your loved ones uh, in the uh, event that you pass away. So yeah, great question. And just to kind of like follow up on that one thing that I read too that you had said is make sure that you get professionals for those things. And I feel like that has been, at least for myself, has been a really powerful lesson because 
it can be very tempting to kind of DIY it with the internet, try and figure out, do day trading, that kind of thing. But there can be a lot of benefits to hiring the right people too, right? Yeah, just just like anything, and, I, and obviously we're in healthcare, so I keep referring back to healthcare as a good example. Um, so a couple things, you go to the doctor when you have questions about your health. You take your car to a mechanic when you have questions about your car, right? You call an HVAC tech when you have issues with your air conditioning, but you're gonna do your own finances and your own taxes and your own investing? Did you go to school for that? Do you have an advanced degree in that? Okay, if you do and you're a CPA, I get it. Do your own taxes. If you're not, why would you not also reach out to a professional that spends their entire day learning, understanding, doing it? It's that 10,000 hour rule, right? You know, you go to a surgeon who's done 10,000 hours of that surgery. Well, a CPA has done 10,000 hours of taxes. So they're probably pretty good about it. They're reading the latest updates that come out from the IRS. They're catching things that uh, are odd or that you may not miss. And, and yes, there's a lot of, I think, good software out there. I'm not knocking the software, but uh, inherently, you know, when there's a user involved that's not a professional, the software is sometimes only as good as the user and, and entering the things in whereas a professional can get to know you, get to know your personal situation, and then hand tailor things. So I, even me, and being a, a, a really into finances and talking about this and reading about it every day, uh, I don't do my own taxes. I, I go to a professional uh, tax advisor for my taxes. When I have questions about uh, investments, I, I go to a professional. I use an advisor when I invest as well. And they're, they're good because they can keep you uh, from doing things that you shouldn't do when it comes to investing, you know? Um, they keep you, like when the market's down, uh, you know, and you call your investor frantically, they'll hopefully talk you out of pulling out of the stock market and staying, staying through the course. And, and they'll show you, they'll be able to show you data that over the last 50 years, the stock market has traditionally gone up. Yes, it cycles down, but it eventually always goes back up. And if you look at the 50 year track record, it earns on average of eight to 10% over the course of a long period of time. So uh, I suggest professionals for, for real estate, professionals for taxes, uh, professionals for investing. I think we do it in everything else, so why would we not do it with our finances? Right, I mean, tax laws change every single year. It's impossible for a layman to understand and keep up with that. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you want someone every year being like, hey, here's some things that changed, here's what's gonna best benefit you to move this here or make other changes. That's right, and it's really not a huge expense. Uh, you know, most tax advisors don't cost that much money unless you're, you have some considerably complex finances. Uh, most of us don't have considerably complex finances, and if we do and you have a small business, that's even more reason to use a tax advisor is that you're, you're you're, you have complexity to your finances. And the older you get and the more assets you get, the more complexity you have, the better it is to have somebody in your corner, and especially if you get audited. A lot of tax advisors offer audit insurance. I purchase that every year, it's $75. It's not that big of a deal. If I get audited, it's 100% handled by my tax advisor. I don't have to do anything, which is peace of mind, because you know the one thing you don't want to do is mess with the KGB, I mean the IRS. <laughs> You know, they have unlimited power and unlimited time. They're not going anywhere. So uh, you got to have a professional in your corner that can help you navigate if those things happen. 
So that goes into just more defensive. Much more defensive. Yeah, yeah they, they would fall on the defensive end of, of protecting your assets as well. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. It kind of segues into um, the study that was done in 2018. There was a national study of millionaires performed in 2018. It was the largest study ever of millionaires. Um, over 10,000 millionaires were studied. Uh, there's roughly, I think, around 15 or so millionaires in the United States as of you know, last year, uh, around 10,000 of them were studied, and, and um, which is statistically significant for a study. Um, and they came up with some key char characteristics out of that. There were some trends and some commonalities amongst these millionaires that we saw. Yes, I have, I have that right here. Oh, exciting. <laughs> yes. So the first thing, and I love this one, is they live well below their means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, a, I mean, you've heard it, right? Spend less than you make. You know, okay, years ago when Oprah was on TV, and I think I was I was very young, maybe like 12 or 13, and she was doing a financial show, and she had a teacher on there who saved and uh, had a full investment portfolio, um, had all her debt paid off, and she made $30,000 a year. And the takeaway of that story was that it's not the money you make, it's what you do with the money you make. Mm -hmm. And that always stayed with me as far as like where the importance lies. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and I think the same kind of, you've heard very similar, it's not what you make, it's what you keep at the end of the day. Um, I, I mean, we, we so uh, along with that study, I think an important part of the study was they looked at the careers of um, the top five careers um, of the millionaires that were studied, what came out. And, and let me ask you, if you were to guess what would be in the top five, what would be your guess? What would be maybe some of the top five careers that were millionaires? Engineers. Okay, good guess. Engineers. Engineers did make the list. Yay! Yes, they were. They did make the list. What about, what, what do you think? I want to say entrepreneurs. Yeah, so small but, business owners, but yeah, they, I don't know if that's were, specific enough. Yeah, they were very specific on you know types of um, careers that made the list. Any other guesses? I want to say tech industry. Tech, yeah. So the tech, uh, you know, engineers kind of would fall into that yeah. into the tech industry as like software engineers and mechanical engineers. Those fell in. Well, I'll enlighten you. So mo a lot of people guess physicians, and physicians did not make the list. So physicians actually came in at number six, so they're close, they're not quite there. Lawyers didn't make the list, but the number one was teachers, teachers. Now, I did not expect to see that like as a career. professors? So or? it does, it counts both. It counts, uh, you know, all, all ages, all, all, uh, all levels of education, um, but ultimately teachers made the list um, uh, on there uh, as well as, um, and I have the list off to pull it out here, but, um, Traditionally, careers that were very consistent and steady about investing and were very frugal about their money and lived below their means. So uh, back to my point was I've met people that make a million dollars a year and spend a million dollars a year. Well, they're broke 
right? If they make $350,000, $400,000 a year, but they spend and, or they have expenses of $350,000, $400,000 a year, at the end of the year, they're no different than somebody that makes $50,000 a year and spends $50,000 a year, right? They may they have just amount, the same amount of net worth, when you look at net worth, uh, as, as somebody that makes a lot less. So it's not what you make, it's what you keep at the end of the year. And that determines your net worth. So the point is, um, people out of this study, we found the key characteristics, and, and the number one characteristic, as you alluded to, was they spend less than they make. So they have money left over to save and to invest and to use when um, there's an emergency so that they don't go into debt. Well, it's interesting because I have actually met people like that where they'll have a dual income and they could very much survive on that income, no problem, but they were always, always, always in debt. But then they had these very expensive hobbies that now make sense why they were always feeling like they didn't have any money because they're spending thousands of dollars on you know equipment and car stuff and figurines and all sorts of different things that fueled their hobbies and didn't really invest more into, I guess, their life. They invest more in the hobbies that just made them happy. But I mean, to each their own, I guess, but they always complained about not having enough money for that reason. Yeah. And, and, and I understand, you know, kind of the YOLO attitude, you know, you live for the now. The problem is we all get old and we're all going to get to the age of retirement and we're all going to need some money at that point. Um, if you want to pay for kids college and not go extremely into debt, you know, that's important. The other piece is when you live like that, you know, you're one emergency away from bankruptcy or debt or disaster or losing your home, uh, or not being able to keep the lights on. That's the big risk. So what, what is not built in to that is the, the risk factor in that, you know, and the risk quotient on that. So how do you build in a buffer for risk, you know, and, and how do you, so that you don't have to worry about it when, you know, when your finances are straightened out and you're not living paycheck to paycheck and you have money in an emergency fund, three to six months, by the way, uh, you are able to, you know, emergencies or become inconveniences, not emergencies. You know, oh, the car broke down. Eh, no big deal. I've got the money to cover it. You know, the water heater dies. There was a leak in the roof. I mean, those kind of things that could become disastrous for somebody who lives paycheck to paycheck when you have an emergency fund just become inconvenient and then you can go along your way on continuing to invest and continuing to grow your wealth because in the end I want everybody to be wealthy that's the goal I want you able and, and why do we want to be wealthy one we know it reduces stress when we're not worried about money so it helps your health number two you can leave something behind and number three if you want to be generous and give, you can give a lot more, uh, you know, when you're wealthy. So that's really important to me is to be able to give, whether that's money or time or do something I love and I'm passionate about. When I'm not worried about finances, I make much clearer, much clearer decisions. I can work at the job I want to work out and I can give and donate whenever I want to any cause I want. And that's really important. That's what the, some of the benefits of being wealthy. And that brings us to another point on this uh, study of millionaires is that they value financial freedom more than they value social status or looking rich. Yep, exactly, exactly. So you'll find, um, surprisingly, uh, most millionaires, a, a very, very high percentage of them, drive cars that are on average between five and seven years old 
that they bought used. Um, they're not, most of them are not driving around in brand new cars that are, you know, over $100,000, you know, in, in uh, uh, cost. They're driving your, your typical cars that you see on the road. They're driving Toyota Camrys and Priuses and Honda Odysseys and, and uh, they bought them used and they keep them for an average of seven years. Uh, and that's one of the key characteristics of uh, the millionaires from the study. It's just because the car just loses value immediately upon leaving the lot when it's brand new, right? Like that's the main thing? Yeah, yeah, G great pickup. So cars are probably the largest depreciating asset that there is. Anything with wheels and motors goes down in value, typically, not up in value. So uh, when you look at a typical asset and liability sheet, you would stick vehicles on the liability side unless they're paid off. Now, even when they're paid off, most cars go down in value. Of course, there's gonna be some classic cars that might go up, they go up very slowly. That is not a good investment. They still need maintenance. You still gotta put money into them uh, over time. They do rust, they're made of metal and, and other components that go bad. So they do require upkeep. There's, some of them do go up in value. They're, it's pretty rare. Most people don't have some, some kind of a classic car sitting in their garage. Um, and, and so most vehicles, especially vehicles that are daily drivers, boats, jet skis, motorhomes, go down in value and they go down fast. They go down very fast, especially like you said, on average, you lose 10 to 20% on a brand new vehicle. The minute you drive it off the lot, that's a lot of money depending on the, the, the price of the car. So you want to have as little invested in those as possible because they're going the opposite direction of building wealth and you want to invest in things that are building wealth. And then how do you feel about leasing cars? So leasing cars is the mathematically most expensive way to drive. So if there was, you pick the most expensive way to drive, lease is right there. So if you're gonna purchase a car and you wanna to try to lease it, the monthly, so it's a trap, let me put it that way. Um, leases are a way to get you into a vehicle at a low payment, but ultimately have the dealer sell the car for a much higher amount. Because when the lease is over, you have the period where you have to make up the total purchase price, right? So, or you're gonna give the car back and sign up into a new lease and add on to that debt. But ultimately, when you add it up, you would have been way better off financially getting a traditional loan from like your credit union uh, or your local bank uh, and just buying the car from the dealer than you would be leasing the car. Um, or even better, paying cash and buying the car outright. That's the best way to do it because as you're paying interest on the car, not only is it going down in value, it's depreciating, you're paying interest on top of that. So it's making it an even worse investment. So the best thing to do is buy a car with cash. So i.e. buy a car you can afford to pay I, cash That's for. right, that's <laughs> right. I.e. buy a car you can afford. And, and I recommend to, um, to people to have no more invested in vehicles than 50% of your total household income. So if you're wondering, well, how much car should I buy? Okay, so if, if you have you and one other person in your house and you guys make $100,000, let's do $80,000 a year, you should have no more invested in vehicles. That includes anything with wheels and motors. So a motorhome, jet ski, lawnmower, car, you know, motorcycle. Total up, total those up. The value should be no more than 40,000 if you make 80,000 a year. That's gross, I go off gross income. So, so between you and your spouse, each car, if that's 40,000, 
then you need to have 20,000 each, right? So the car should be no more than $20,000 in value between the two of you for each car. So in total, you can have 40,000. That's the max, that's 50% of your take-home pay combined for total household income, uh, and preferably less. So that's a good rule of thumb. I love that. It's nice and easy with the math. That's right, yeah. Okay, so we are coming to the end, but here's, here's what I would like to know. So I think for different phases in our lives, we need to be focusing on different things. So could you give us some advice for if we are, let's say, in our 20s starting out, in our 30s and 40s, and maybe in our 60s and up coming into retirement, what are, what are some things that those age groups should really focus on? Mm-hmm. Great question. Yeah. So the biggest thing I think I see mess people up and hold them back, no matter what age group is debt, that seems to be the hardest thing for people to overcome. It keeps you from investing. It keeps you from doing what you really want to do. So when you're young and you're in your 20s, I would say avoid debt at all possible. Avoid debt and start investing. So you want to be investing where you can. And and when I say investing, I mean, if you have a company 401k, invest in your company 401k. So eight out of 10 millionaires from the millionaire study invested in their company's 401k or retirement plan, 401a, 403b, 401k. Um, So that's the first thing when you're young, because the earlier you start, the more you can take advantage of compounding interest. If you're in your thirties, I want you to look at your finances and start thinking about your the way you're spending your money now that should be done at all ages but you need to have an emergency fund you need to have life insurance and i recommend term life insurance never whole life insurance you need to have a 529 college plan or an an esa education savings account if you have children i think that's important as well and you need to also be putting away for retirement if you're nearing retirement and i would say go back to the 30s you know 30s and 40s uh, if you don't have a house you want to start saving for a house if you can Um, But you need to be out of debt. You got to get out of debt first. That's the key. Uh, And then now if you're nearing retirement, I think you want to start looking at your retirement funds. Do you still have a house payment? You know, I would like to see all my retirees go into the retirement with no house payment. Um, As your incomes go down, typically, it's nice to not have to to know that you have a place to live forever uh, and you don't have to worry about a house payment going into retirement. So I would say start thinking about that. How are you going to get the house paid off? Obviously, do not have new debt. Um, You want to have no debt if if possible by that point. Um, You are um, thinking about your what I call encore career and what you're going to do in, in retirement, uh, something that you love, something maybe that you're passionate about, uh, something that can still earn um, some income for you as well. Uh, and so start to look at, at what does that mean? How are, how are you gonna have a legacy? Uh, and how are you gonna stay active into retirement? And again, avoiding debt. So along the way, you gotta avoid debt along the entire you know, uh, process, along your entire uh, journey through life, avoid debt. Uh, number two, you should be investing regularly um, uh, along the entire journey as well. And uh, you should have a defensive plan. So an emergency savings, three to six months, everybody needs that. You should have the right types of insurances in place, the right wills, the right advanced directives, uh, living wills, those kind of things. So I think uh, doing those along the way uh, can, can work for everybody. Such great advice. This has been so such a learning experience. 
today. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad you invited me and um, hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, I feel like we could really talk about a whole lot of this stuff, just delving into it. We barely scraped the surface. We did. But if you guys have questions, feel free to leave them in the comments section, send us an email, contact us through positivechoice.org, and we will get those answered either on a future podcast or on, or we'll like maybe reach out right, right below your comments. Um, but again, thank you so much, Eric, for joining us today. And don't forget you guys like subscribe, share. Um, we love your support. So keep it coming and we will see you next time until next time, everybody.